0: Generational Change I'm Jen
1: I'm Peter And hopefully Jen's technical issues Will subside No,
0: I don't have them Honestly I could have stayed On the computer But I just know That this doesn't Have the delay So I'd rather Do it this way So once you came on And are running the show I felt like I could Bail out that way
1: Fair enough But of course I could hold things down If necessary So there you go How was your day?
0: Uh, Pretty uneventful which I appreciate.
1: Yeah, well considering what the other day was like, yeah. (laughs) You know,
0: when you put things on social media, I get calls from people that otherwise I didn't tell what happened. This happened like the thing when when Graham had his appendectomy and you now post this stuff and I get a call from my mom saying, is Lulu okay? I'm like, Lulu's okay.
1: Yes, Lulu is fine. I wouldn't have posted something if it was negative. It was always after the fact. It was, Lulu's okay now. But it was an eventful day. And, of course, everyone will still check in and say, is Lulu okay? Yeah. Right. She's fine. She's fine. <laughs> at the moment, it wasn't. Now, if I had gone and put that all over social media. Yeah, and I say. said
0: Lulu's fine. I lost at least a year of my life that I'll like that i never get back. Like, I still feel like I haven't been breathing normally since. So.
1: Well, you know, that is a fantastic trans- transition to our wonderful guest this evening because she has definitely lost as many years of her life as you have, considering the type of ish mm-hmm. that you guys have to put yourselves through in order to deal with the absolute endless nonsense that is uh, co- corrupt politics in the United States. And, of course, uh, we do not forget her. We think she's wonderful and somebody who we also hope to see run again and continue to make tremendous strides in a part of the country that desperately needs it. Uh, Buffalo, New York, of course, being A place where, uh, you know, working class America has uh, unfortunately taken it on the chin for far too long. But you know her and love her as an unabashed socialist who ran and was the Democratic nominee for mayor of Buffalo, New York, the second largest city in the state, mind you. Should have been the mayor, but we all know what happened.
0: Hey. Hey, how are you? I am well.
2: How are you? It's good to see you.
0: It's good to see you. Um, I, You know, I'm always curious when we catch up with people that were candidates after not being candidates, because I feel like I know in my case, and I'm pretty sure in your case, we're able to be so much more productive, not having to be a candidate, that it's amazing what we could actually get done, you know, what? When, when we're not caught up in nonsense. So I know you're going to have like a lot of interesting stuff that you've been working on.
2: Yeah, so um, today I actually did um, a book reading and children's literary event with the former Buffalo Bill, um, so that was fun, um, you know, I just, in case you can't tell, right, like um, losing losing suits me well. Um, yeah. So.
0: There's a freedom to it. You know, it's like, yeah, you you lose, but then you're also not beholden to a position. And now you have a platform and you can you, you have actually a certain amount of freedom, because I know that's how I felt even being able to do this. Um, so, you know, there is something somewhat empowering about it. But what have you be- been doing politically, if anything? So
2: um, after I lost the general election in 2021, I worked with the Working Families Party for a year, um, building, really building up our local capacity in Buffalo. Um, And this past June in our Democratic primaries, um, we actually ran a slate of of three women for the Buffalo Common Council um, at a time where we have not had a woman on our city council in um, a decade and a half. Um, Unfortunately, um, the establishment prevails. um, So, None of our candidates were successful, but we're continuing to build a movement. And what I'm explaining to our folks is that movements take time. We're up against two centuries of infrastructure, of power brokering, and we've been at this for less than five. Um, So I continue to be very proud of the work that we're doing, the movement that we're building, and how we respond um, with mutual aid to local crises. And it's not all about politics, right? It's really about building community um, and, and building durable relationships for sustainability over the long term.
0: Definitely. I mean, I'm interested in what you're saying. Are you, did I hear you right that there has not been a female
2: in what position in Buffalo? We have a nine district um, representative uh, by the by, commission. Uh, called our common council. Um, okay. and it's been uh, nine men for the last maybe 14 years. So this time so there around, have been women, there have been women. There have been women, just not okay. for 14 years. Okay, which is
0: disgusting in and of itself, but you freaked me out for a minute because it's like, if, if they hadn't even had any women by now, I'd be like scared for you people there.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, I like Buffalo a lot. I actually like working places. I like Cleveland. I like Buffalo. I like Rochester. I, I like that. I like Pittsburgh. Um, there's just something very uh, loyal about the people that are in places like that, because there's like this generational vibe because they aren't necessarily the most desirable places to move. So you get people that are from there and have been there for generations. And I think that's really cool to me as somebody from South Florida, where it's like, there is no generational anything.
2: Right. Yeah. Buffalo is, is like that. It's like a Cleveland in and a, and a Pittsburgh. Um, also some of my favorite cities, um, and you know, it's Buffalo. It, yes. It's tough, um, but we are we are faithful folks who really believe in working class power. You know, um, I will continue to tout that the Starbucks unionization movement began right here in Buffalo. So you know, while we're still very much fighting racism and redlining and establishment politics, we are seeing this glimmer of hope, um, particularly among young progressives in Buffalo. So it's really an exciting time.
1: India, would you say that the experience of what the democratic establishment puts you through is actually a good thing for the long run? Because I think there's there's something to be said for how many times they can get away with silencing uh, working class people, progressives, um, you know, we're seeing right now the, uh, and we're going to obviously get into it shortly, uh, the absolute uh, fear that the Democratic establishment has, particularly with President Obama sending out uh, his right-hand man, David Axelrod, to basically mm-hmm. tell everyone that. Uh, Dr. West should not run for president. He's going to help get Trump elected. You know, four or five years ago, I would say that that would probably have a definitive effect on the electorate. But I kind of get the feeling now that by hearing that, it's almost empowering people to be like, okay, well, if you're telling me that I shouldn't support Dr. West, maybe I should support him. And maybe that'll force the Democratic Party to change. I mean, you know. (laughs)
2: <laughs> it's astonishing to me that we have folks on in the Democratic Party and on the left who say, well, rural and poor white people are voting against their self-interest by voting Republican. Right. And in the same breath, we're telling our young people vote blue no matter who. And We've not seen student debt relief when people are strapped with hundreds of thousands of dollars in student debt um, with, with no way out, who the dream of home ownership is not attainable to them, um, who are delaying starting families and having children and and things, you know, we're still waiting for single payer health care. So like voting blue has not gotten us any improvements in our material conditions. And even when the Democrats have had overwhelming majorities in the federal and state legislatures, we're still seeing them drag their feet on a lot of the issues of the time. So like, yes, I do believe that we're going to see more people leaning into third parties um, and and really just saying no to the status quo. And that's what the Democratic Party, as it stands today, represents to a lot of folks in my generation and even younger.
0: Yeah, I agree. They're not going to be able to bully us this time, I think, you know, especially now post Trump. And I'm not saying that that was a holiday. OK, like I'm not saying that that was good. I didn't choose that. It wasn't what I wanted. I I wanted Bernie. But, you know, we saw how that went. So, you know, for me, it's like, yeah, so we saw that Trump sucked. But I just saw Joe Biden appoint Elliot Abrams to some something, something diplomacy. So how am I to be scared? How is it to be scary to me? Oh, my God, we could have Trump again when the Democrat is literally putting in the same people that are the cause of the scary. So it's, it's really like, it's a very hollow threat to me to even be scared of Trump when Joe Biden is doing things literally that
2: Trump did. And there's no, there's no safety for us, right? Like we have watched the overturning of Roe. We've watched the gutting of affirmative action and the, the attacks on civil rights and women's rights are going to continue. So, like you said, what incentive is there for us to, I mean, you know, it's like we're choosing whether we're going to be stabbed with a sharp knife or a dull one. Um, so, you know, I, I do hope that we'll see more inspirational leadership Um come up. And it's sad to me that people are more concerned about their political careers um, rather than doing what's right and delivering for working class Americans.
0: Yeah, which is why I mean I'll I'll never be quiet about that as of now. Obviously, I can't foresee anything changing. I mean, I who knows who gets into this, but assuming Cornell West is in fact the Green Party nominee, um, I can't fathom a universe wherein that's not who I'm supporting because you know it's it's really not even it's so blatant now. Right. This isn't like maybe, you know, where you would have said 30 years ago where they weren't that different, except for maybe on some one green thing or some real mm-hmm. one. This is it is so different. You know, I mean, it's you have the Democrats, and Republicans that are very, very similar with a couple of little exceptions. And then you have Dr. West, who mm-hmm. is completely different from like it's not even in the same ballpark.
2: Right. Um, you know, I think it's very unfortunate that we are seeing sort of the Democratic establishment come out and really just crush um, any sort of challenge from from the left or from the even the moderate wing of the Democratic Party, right? Like democracy demands that we should have debates and discourse around the issues of our time. And the fact that we're not even being allowed that as voters, um, we're not given the choice, right? We're being uh, force fed. What we're being offered. I, th- I think it's very um, unfair and anti-democratic. Yeah. Clearly,
1: clearly they are concerned about what he could potentially do, especially if he puts his focus, uh, which I think would be smart in a lot of the swing States, uh, because that is going to force the hand of both major political parties in terms of, you know, cl- trying to clamor for those vote chairs because I think he is very inspirational and, you know, as much as, um, we probably thought that Nina would have made a fantastic candidate, um, although she almost assuredly would have run in the Democratic primaries. Dr. West is taking a huge chance here to try to change the electoral infrastructure of this country in a way that really hasn't been seen before. And the fact that you had Miss neoliberal personified Joan Walsh write that insane article a month ago saying that Dr. West has no business running, pres- running for president, now you have Former President Obama's right-hand man, David Axelrod, coming out and saying that Dr. West will almost assuredly swing the election to Trump. So they're already putting those guardrails in place to basically tell you, don't even look at this other candidate who is not going to be on the ballot for another year and a half. To me, that screams that they are petrified of what this man represents if he gets any amount of momentum behind him. I have to agree. And
2: I mean, you know, in a country where we tell our children you can be anything you want to be, even president of the United States, right? Now it's like, oh well, you can be anything you want to be, even president of the United States, unless it is our preferred candidate's first term and we wanna have him in there for four more years. Um, the, the entire thing is just very discouraging. Um But, you know, I I do hope that we are able to really galvanize around Brother West and and any any anyone else um, who would like to be considered. Right. And really press the issues and make sure that, you know, there is equal coverage and fair coverage and that we're able to have productive discourse um, around the issues that we want to tackle. I think that party loyalty um, has gotten us into some very difficult positions. Um, and that we have to look outside of what our party affiliations are and really focus on what what the issues are, which it remains, um, you know, the people's platform, universal healthcare, free college, and the things that we know that are really gonna get this country and this economy back on track.
3: There
1: is no question that based on what has been the MO, does not change as Business Insider indicates, as Axelrod says in 2016, the Green Party played an outsized role in tipping the election to Donald Trump as if those votes were as if Hillary Clinton deserved those votes or, or, or had uh, or had a right to them, own them for whatever reason. Pointing to Jill Stein's candidacy in the context featuring Trump and former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Now, with Cornell West as their likely nominee, they can easily do it again. Risky business. Uh, The fact that they're putting out, putting out, you know, the the sounding the alarms as of this particular time, you know, when it came to Joe Stein, those alarms didn't come until the very end of the 2016 election. 2020 obviously was a completely different animal because of the way that COVID had just completely changed everyone's lives. And we saw that President Trump was clearly not up to the task of dealing with such an existential crisis. So it wasn't so much Joe winning. It was Trump losing. And so now we're in more normal circumstances, but they are not even attempting to play this any other way other than, yeah, we know Joe sucks really, really bad, but we still need your vote and we're not going to do anything to earn it. That, to me, is the biggest issue here, is that he is the president of the United States. He has executive authority at his disposal at any moment, and could change the lives of millions of people, millions of voters in this country like that, whether it is student loan debt, whether it is health care, whether it is cannabis, decriminalization of the drug, and also expungement of nonviolent drug offenders, I can go on and on and on. And the BS about the parliamentarian or what the Supreme Court says you can and can't do with uh, student loan debt, we know that there are laws in place that allow the chief executive to over. Rule those sentiments. So, as far as I'm concerned, there the onus
2: is on them. It's not on us. I I agree. You're spot on. And I would also just add that, like, you know, no Green Party candidate is peeling off a bunch of votes from you know devout Democrats are going to vote Democrat no matter what, right? Like, the people who are going to vote for the Green Party candidate are the people who are fed up. With the status quo, who are tired of being lied to, who are tired of broken promises and being told that actions are going to occur um, if you give uh, just give us another chance, right? And then we're being slapped in the face. And you know, I for one am tired of being pissed on and told it's raining. Um, and I and I think that, you know, there needs to be some accountability and they should be afraid because people are tired.
0: Yeah, I think something that was really smart that was said on our friend uh, Keaton and Russell Do dissident show was, you know, when everybody is talking this this spoiler problem. OK, the spoiler problem. Um, first of all, that's been created because of your lack of any offering. It's not like the, if, if there couldn't be a spoiler, there wouldn't be able to be a spoiler like there, that's on you. But. That aside, our goal, at least I can speak for myself and and it seems like that's what the point of what they were saying on their show. Is it just our goal isn't to screw Joe or elect Trump, nor are we delusional in thinking that somebody like Dr. West is necessarily capable of winning uh, the national race. However, is it reasonable to say that our goal is to make sure that the Green Party gets the 5% and simultaneously starts making momentum for down ballots and other issues that are going to spur off, you know, off of that campaign, that's our goal. The fact that it could screw them, that's neither here nor there. I'm just saying that the fear of Trump is no longer going to be sufficient. And that I agree with you, India, like at least in my case, whether or not Dr. West was running, I'm still not supporting Joe. I'll go back to the railroad workers. I can add the Willow Project, the, the Mountain Valley Pipeline. I mean, look, I it, it's ridiculous at this point. It's almost like he's purposefully giving me really good talking points of reasons not to vote for him. So it really would be irrelevant as to whether there was a good green candidate. He still, like Joe wouldn't get my vote
2: anyway. Right. And, you know, to, to your point, right, I think that we put so much emphasis on Presidential elections, but change doesn't generally come from the Oval Office, right? Like when we talk about material conditions not changing, it is building that power and building that political muscle so that we are pursuing local and congressional and, and state seats um, where decisions are actually being made and where resources are actually being allocated.
0: Yeah. And I for sure think that Dr. West's campaign is, you know, theoretically assuming he's the Green, again, I hate saying this, like we're not having a Democratic vote in the Green Party. I'm not even in the Green Party. But, you know, it's I mean, in theory, this could be the campaign that really does propel what we're like our mission collectively, at least most of the people that we're on the same page with and puts out the kind of ideas that we want out there. So to me, that's a win. Anything that galvanizes people on that mission and that trickles down locally, which a really good grassroots campaign, that's exactly what it should be doing. So to me, that's the goal, right? Like the, like, it isn't being the spoiler, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you can't scare me with that because we've seen Trump and now our president's appointing the same people. So I, I don't see why, how you're going to scare me.
1: And then there's also the argument about the federal judges and whether or not there are things that are being done when it comes to, let's say, reproductive rights. You know, the Democrats made it a habit to basically rubber stamp all of Trump's federal judges. They made no attempt during Obama's presidency the last two years to put Merrick Garland on the court. As far as I'm concerned, that had a lot to do with Hillary wanting to use that as a crutch during the general to kind of force people's hands, perhaps because the people knew she wasn't as popular and thought that they could scare them into voting for her. And now you're seeing ample evidence, not a little bit, not a lot, an overwhelming amount of evidence for both justices, Thomas and Alito, to bring about impeachment proceedings to get them off the bench. And even if you swung that court by one seat, Justice Roberts has shown from the time he's been on the court, That he is overwhelmingly, when it is an even court, to be a fairly neutral arbiter when it comes to the decisions that the the justice will bring down. So as a result, if you flip the court from six to three to five to four, that would be earth shattering within itself. And the fact that they are making no attempts whatsoever to change that dynamic and and not even forget that they're not going to expand the court. That's, That's a whole other can of worms. But to me... The idea that you have all of these opportunities to make real change and you're not taking it and you expect people to just get in line to vote for you again, don't expect it. Why in the hell would anybody just go ahead and give up your vote? I, I I don't see it happening this time.
2: Yeah, t- totally agree. And I mean, the the ev- every day there's some other, you know, now aides to Justice Thomas accepting Venmo payments from, it's just so clearly and obviously cor- obviously corrupt, um, and there's just, there's no movement, and there seems to be very little outrage coming out of the Capitol about, you know, how to proceed uh, with some level of accountability for what's happening.
0: Yeah, no, everybody's very selective about when they have outrage in terms of certain principles. It really is very party specific. I've noticed that Um, when when Donald Trump appointed Elliot Abrams, Ilhan Omar was not having it. Biden appoints him. Where is everybody? Why is nobody saying anything? Why is he not being questioned?
1: Right. Because being put in that trap, I think, is one of the worst parts of our political discourse Hmm. as of today, And one of the reasons I personally wanted to have you back on the podcast is because I don't want anyone to ever forget what that effing party put you through. And the people that pretended like they were there, like Chuckie the Shroom, who had no intention whatsoever of actually helping you. And he could have helped you significantly. And instead, he was projecting that, oh, yeah, we definitely want to have Ms. Walton in, you know, the mayor's seat in Buffalo, no they didn't. They were doing everything to put on this facade like they actually wanted to have a generational change talent in the mayoral seat in the second biggest city in the state of New York. And of course, had it just been the Democratic Party just, you know, not even doing anything, just saying support the Democratic nominee. You would be the mayor right now, and who knows what more significant change would be happening in the state. I don't want anyone to forget, because as we know in politics, especially in this country, people forget everything the next day. It's like this recurring cycle of all these changes that come constantly. But we must remember that the intent of the democratic establishment is to maintain the status quo at the absolute detriment of working people in this country. More and more people need to wake up to that reality.
2: Yeah. And the part that we are really missing, right. is like this class solidarity. Um, And I think my biggest takeaway from, you know, running two times um, in three years and losing both times. Right. Like when I ran for city council this time around, a lot of people seemed very excited and were like, Oh, well, you should have won mayor. But again, like turnout was super low. Um, People are just very apathetic. But one thing that I learned is that it's not, it's more difficult to try and change the system from the inside than it is to create something new altogether, in my opinion. Um, You know, I I think that people are so entrenched and so used to just doing things in the same old way that while we are pursuing democratic lines and seats, we also have to be building up our third party, organizing, Mm -hmm. making sure that people are actually getting out to vote, right? And I think that a part of what I see is, is my mistake this last election cycle was that we went in with the mindset that we needed to activate non-traditional voters and really drive out turnout and get young people out. And then once we got into the campaign, we reverted back to the same old strategy of traditional triple prime voters between 55 and 70. Right. Right. Um, You know, identifying people who, who normally turn out when the reality is that we're not likely to convert them to our side. We have to activate the people who hold our values. And that's really what it comes down to.
0: I sort of see it. It's really interesting. It's it's really this chicken and an egg situation because you want people to be involved to vote. But the reason that people aren't involved and don't vote, I believe the two main things are they don't think it makes a difference. And two, most people are busting ass just to keep their heads above water and they don't really have time to be involved in it. OK, so those to me are the two bigger. Not a lot of people are. It's a matter of principle that they don't vote. It's usually right. And I think that it's like if material conditions were made better, let's say in theory, by a party that represented labor, let's say in theory, we had a democratic party that represented labor and they were making material conditions better for people, then people would have the ability and the mental wherewithal to come out and vote. So it's, it's like this kind of, it's like this catch 22 thing. On the one hand, we need people to come out and vote. But on the other hand, we're not really inspiring them like the, you know, when we look at getting them to come out for a partisan race, why would they like, what's in it for them? So it's like, it's hard.
2: While we're on the subject, um, because this is something that bothers me also, (laughs) is the disconnect in labor between leadership and membership, right? Because in organized labor, we have the leadership who they're playing politics, they're playing mm-hmm. people's lives and you have the values of the workers and the members who are uh, upholding and keeping these unions in power, but then they're not representing the wishes at the, at the membership level. I just, you know, there's, it's, it's, it's so many things that like need to be called out that need to be talked about and need to be pulled out and put up front and front and center and just confront it head on because, you know, We have to pay our dues for representation and adequate contracts, but we don't have to keep electing presidents to our unions that are going to be making decisions that are contradictory to the values and what we're supposed to be fighting for.
1: All right. So that's that's important, because I do want to obviously pick your brain on uh, what we would consider to be a very poor political calculation on AOC's part to. I mean, look, if you're going to endorse the president, it is what it is. But there were two things in her endorsement. Three things, if you want to count the fact that she did it on Pod Save America, for God's sake. Uh, What I would say is on the one hand, yeah, I get it, you're endorsing the president, most often or not, you're gonna endorse the president in your own party if they're running for reelection. But two things here, number one, uh, she's not asking for anything and he's the president and she has a swath of influence, especially amongst the youth, to get them to get out to the polls and support him. Didn't ask for a thing, which I thought was really questionable. why is she endorsing him so far out in advance? Uh, I really don't understand what the political calculation is here. And the fact that she said, well, there's no real competition. All right, look, you don't want to acknowledge RFK and Marianne, that's fine. Uh, but suggesting that Joe has been doing a really good job as president. I mean, Alex, w- what are you doing here? Y- you know, I understand that she's probably looking at You know, Jill seat and thinking that she may try to run for, you know, the U.S. Senate next year. All right. Have Mm -hmm. at it. I don't know how you think you're going to rally people if you just look like your everyday run of the mill Democrat now.
2: Yeah, I um, I don't know what the motivation for that was. um, But I think the ALC is politically savvy and very smart um, and we may not know what's on the table, Um, but it doesn't, she doesn't strike me as a person who makes these types of decisions unless there was some other reason behind it, and perhaps is that um, I want to believe that my political heroes don't sell out and just get consumed um, by the machine and the establishment, right? I want to believe that in my heart, Um, and I prefer to just give folks the benefit of the doubt, so we'll We'll, we'll see how we'll see how things develop.
0: I appreciate that because I generally do that, too. I generally say you, we really have very little information as to what was ever said in private communications and what pe- like we really don't know. You know, it does seem to me that her endorsement, just like the early union endorsements, just like all of it is everybody is just really falling in line very quickly. And there's somebody basically commanding them to do so. Now, what that looks like at the top of the food chain, I don't know. But clearly, they're all closing ranks. Like, it, it's it, it, this is so obscenely early in the race for all of these things to even be happening. that, And, and especially given the fact that they are blatantly disregarding having a primary.
2: And it's, it's so, I mean, it's so obvious, right? Like, his his approval ratings are in the tank. Um, mm-hmm. he's, they have to close ranks early because there could be a serious, well, there is a serious threat of Biden not being reelected, which is why I don't understand, um, you know, I think uh, a good leadership example from him would be for him to step aside and uh, allow fresh talent to at, at least have a chance. You know, I just, well, there's no- why do you
0: think he's not, why do you think he's not doing that?
2: because he's the president. I mean, (laughs) you, I don't, I don't think you become the president and you're just like, eh, well, I kind of suck. Let me go move on and do something else. Right. Um, you know, he is president and he does kind of suck, but you know, if he's, he's the most powerful human being in the free world and who just gives up that power willingly. Right. Like we're not necessarily talking about a movement leader um, who has any vested interest in growing leadership or succession plan, right? We're talking about people and persons who have every interest in the continued enclosure of wealth and power and keeping um, traditional, and when I mean traditional, I mean working working voices out of the political and decision-making process.
0: Yeah, I think it's that. And I also think that amongst people in their um, upper party echelons, that to them, it would look bad if Joe didn't run and they didn't automatically get behind Kamala Harris. And I think they don't think that she is a very, very good candidate. And I think that that might be one of the reasons why he may have been convinced, even though he had said, obviously, originally he was going to be a one term president, which I still do believe will be true, ultimately. But Um, You know, I think that a big part of it is that they don't have a second in command that they have any confidence in in using as a
2: candidate. I hadn't even thought about that, but I think you're right.
1: India, uh, one of the things that really stood out during your mayoral election was uh, what I thought was on full display, the major disconnect between union leadership and union rank and file. And we see that a lot now. I think it's safe to say that the unions that got behind Joe right away at the beginning of June, Uh, uh, it wasn't a question of what the rank and file wanted. It's a question of what the union leadership establishment wanted, particularly at the top of the AFL CIO. And then it just kind of trickles down to everybody else saying, well, this is what we're doing. Uh, Can you talk about what that experience was like running and the difference between the rank and file union members? Versus the union delegates and bosses, because one thing we hear very often from even independents, but especially from politicos on the right, is that unions are corrupt. Well, yeah, they're corrupt with bosses, but rank and file—those are working-class people trying to live decent lives—and I think people really get a miscon—there's a misconception about how they actually work.
2: Yeah, Um, you know, I, I touched on this a little bit earlier, but you know, the endorsement process especially at the local level, is, is a very rigorous one, right? Like when you answer questionnaires, the questions are lengthy, they ask for a lot of detail, you then go into an interview and you're talking to the members, right? Um, but I have experienced that, like, you know, I have all of the values alignment, my policies align with the membership and what people want, and then it gets to the committee um, which a lot of times is administrators and higher ups. And they're like, well, we've had a relationship with this incumbent for this many years, and we can get money put in the budget. We yeah. like, don't want to take the risk of you know damaging that relationship in case this insurgent candidate loses, right? Like when you're an insurgent, they can always come back for you at the end. But, you know, if you damage your relationship with the incumbent, then you're much less likely to be able to come back from that. So while I disagree with it as a strategy, I do understand the reasoning behind it. What I wish they would do is just be real about it um, and say, like, hey, come in and get to know our members we're not going to endorse you. Um, don't waste your time. Don't waste your precious hours filling out the questions yeah. here. Like, let's have a meet and greet. Like, we're going to go with what we have been doing all of this time. Like, don't lead people to believe that they even have a chance, um, a chance in the matter. Like, I have I have watched unions, like, legitimately endorse people who are anti-union um, yeah. <laughs> over insertion. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so it's just, you know, we we I would I would love to see a day where union leadership reflects union membership. Additionally, there's a saying that power corrupts absolutely, right? So like you see some leadership move up through the rank and file, but once they get to the top, they've completely forgotten where they come from or what the whole purpose of our organizing really is. And that's to prioritize working class people.
0: Yeah, there's this very, very um, dysfunctional relation between union bosses and political representatives that it's its it's its own form of, it's corruption, but yet it's done under the guise of its labor. But it's not labor because you're really not benefiting labor because you're actually endorsing candidates. I mean, our representative was happy to fast track the Trans-Pacific Partnership. She was big on signing off on that. And yet the AFL-CIO wouldn't even grant me a screening and just flat out endorsed her. So, like, when you see that, it's hard to have any confidence in them as an organization that's really fighting for working people. And, I mean, the goal is to just at least get screening with members, with members. You cannot, like, and that's, they know that if they prevent that, that they can just do this and just keep these same people in there.
2: Yeah. One thing I can say, though, is, like, once you develop relationships with members, many of them are like, you know, I don't care who the org endorsed like I'm gonna come knock doors yeah. phone calls like if you can really hire that grassroots support it's it's, it's critical <clears throat> yeah
1: India can you speak to just the absolutely defeatist feeling that the establishment tries to put on people's shoulders I mean we remember the night you won the nomination and everybody was really jazzed up and excited and thought wow you know New York who I which I still believe is the state that is going to bring about the most progressive change I think the New York Health Act is the best shot we've got at having a universal health care plan even at the state level. Uh, we have our friends in the MMT community who don't think it would work, but I, I digress. Point being is I think what the establishment just hopes for is that even in the face of what I consider to be in-your-face public corruption, which is what it's become now, they can't even hide it anymore. I think the goal is to just deter people from getting involved or if they are involved they basically just say well the system's corrupt and I can't make any changes. Can you talk about the importance of sticking with it even when they basically are showing their hand right up front that we will do everything in our capacity even cheating in public to prevent systemic change from happening. I think the more they expose themselves the more if we figure out a way to unify as a working class united front the more effective we're gonna be in the long run if we do stick with this.
2: I, I completely agree, um, you know, it's, it's just becoming so egregious. So, you know, where, where I am in Buffalo, the chairman of our Erie County Democratic Committee is also the um, commissioner of the Board of Elections. Right, so in in there lies an inherent conflict because he's in, he's endorsing candidates for Democratic primary, and then he's also overseeing the primary elections, right? Um, and this this is normal here, and no one questions it, no one bats an eye. But I think the importance of resilience, um, you know, of not backing down, of not giving up. Right. Like during the political cycle, there are certain things that, you know, I know that I cannot say um because it affects electability and you know after the election cycle like I let down my hair and I open up the top three buttons on my shirt because I'm ready to lay it all out and talk about what the experience is actually like for real people right for people who've not been groomed to be political candidates and all the sacrifices you're making um the the way people treat you and the behaviors and just like the The shadiness of it all, right, and I go into this common council race this year, thinking it's a much smaller race, there's a lot less at stake, and people are just going to be nicer, but it wasn't it wasn't so um you know they are just doing everything within their power to keep us and people like us away from power I mean Chuck Schumer endorsed my opponent in a primary election for a city council seat, right? Right. When, when have you ever seen sitting senators endorsed in these little tiny municipal elections? It's, it was, it's
1: ridiculous. Much less the Senate majority leader. <laughs> but, I think but that
0: goes to show you place. how scared they are. That's how scared they are. And I think, you know, it's, they really tip their hat when they, when they show, show that because it really gives you an idea of what it is they're scared of. You know, I think it's very, it's very, very interesting. I wasn't surprised that they took you that seriously, you know, I think that that wasn't necessarily, I mean, they were pretty smart to take you seriously. It's the cheating thing. It's the fact that Chuck Schumer feels the need to get involved. It's just all so absurd. And so um, it's so nefarious. And it's the real tragedy of it all, is that the people of Buffalo are collateral damage and the people of Buffalo, they're not the ones who, like this isn't gonna, this is not what's in their interest.
1: Think of it this way, if you were the mayor, what kind of a scenario would uh, you know, the, the Buffalo Bills be looking at if you were the mayor and saying, I got news for you guys we would love for you to stay here but if you think that the taxpayers are footing the bill for billionaires to build your new shiny object of a stadium that's not going to happen we're going to make it so that yeah you you want to say that a portion of the tax burden falls upon the city of buffalo okay but the billionaire class finds a way to basically pay for nothing and as far as i'm concerned Somebody who's not bought and paid for by the Chamber of Commerce is not going to play ball the way that those people want you to. And so that in itself is a prime example of what Mayor Brown was willing to do that you are not willing to do. And that is where the real change happens, especially at the local level.
2: Yeah. And, you know, my my expertise doesn't come from a political science degree, right? It comes from nursing, it comes from mothering, it comes from community care. And that flies in the face of how we feel governments should be run, particularly when everything is owned by the developer class here in in Buffalo. And the more capital you have access to, Uh, the more the more power you have and like you said it's it's the people of Buffalo who ultimately suffer and you know between 2021 and now you know my my email and my voicemail are still full of people who are looking for help and they feel like somehow I'm the person that can help them solve whatever issues you know the, the 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 you know, May 14th happened. And then we had this horrible storm around Christmas time where 47 people passed away. And some of these tragedies are unavoidable, but the response could be different, should be different. And you know, a lot of this is just unnecessary in the first place. And it it is just, um, it is sad. But I know that I have a place and a purpose here. This is my hometown. I love it here. And I know that like what I do, whether in office or out, is impactful. Um, you know, I'm inspiring young people. Um, I'm in the grocery store, and little girls are introducing me to the, their moms, don't know who I am, but the children do, right? Because they they are paying attention and they see someone. looks like them that they can relate to and that is um what motivates me to continue to to try and you know just be as impactful as possible and not get discouraged like they can listen I'm not gonna say it too loud but unless they kill me I'm not going anywhere
0: yeah No. And, and you, you definitely know how to reach the most people at the local level and the community aid and the local stuff is really where we can make the biggest difference. It's what we try to do. Um, at when I, I, I say that now from I'm sitting in North Carolina, but when I'm at home, and it's really what we try to do. And I think that that is something where the loudest voices and people like you are the real base of what then builds up and bubbles over. And, and it doesn't necessarily need to be political, you know? And, and that's that's what's amazing about community help. And it doesn't matter what people's political parties are either. Um, I'm, I'm like so over all of that. I've just decided that I don't have an ism. I'm not an ist. I don't have an affiliation with anything. Play. Like I, people say, well, are you a socialist? No, I'm not a capitalist. I'm not a socialist. I'm not, I'm not an ist, right? And I think that we should like maybe start you know, unlabeling and just being regular people—that's what I think.
2: Yeah, I, I'm a I'm a human being. Um, I am a lover of humans and humanity mm-hmm. and animals and babies and all of the things. Right, and it came up this year again. Right, they're like, "Well, do you still consider yourself a democratic socialist?" And I'm right. like you consider me a democratic socialist. Exactly. I agree with the values, right? You used it as a dog whistle and, and to red bait and make people afraid because what I wanted was to bring everyone a decent standard of living. And somehow there are people in this world who are against everyone just having a safe, healthy place to live and access to healthcare and a quality education and clean air and water. Like it's, it's I'm like, I'm not the radical one. Like, You who don't (laughs) think that children should have three meals a day (laughs) are the crazy people.
1: Right. Absolutely. And you're also, uh, your story in particular is one that the Democratic Party would rather pretend didn't happen, specifically because you are their most, and you, you brought up loyalty at the beginning. There is no, in either political party, there is no more loyal voting base than Black women in the Democratic Party. And the fact that that has been a card that this party has played for now multiple generations, and they want to pretend like your story doesn't exist. You know, you're not this created in a laboratory type of candidate like a Kamala Harris is. You are a class black woman from Buffalo, New York. You are the Democratic Party if it was actually the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. And right now, What they're hoping will happen is that you'll just go away, that you'll go away and you won't make a lot of noise. You know, that's what they're hoping for. But I think the more we coalesce and build this rainbow coalition, if you will, as Reverend Jackson used to say, of working class people, this is how the change is going to happen. Because I think for the for the hundreds, if not thousands of people that are going to see this live stream and the the clips that will follow, I want them to be reminded of how powerful your voice is and what we're fighting for here. Because the Democratic Party says that they represent you, but in reality, they fear someone like you more than anybody else because you expose their grift. And their grift is that they are not the party of working people. They are the party of Wall Street and Silicon Valley. And Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi embody that more than anybody else.
2: Yeah. And I just want to, you know, just remind folks, like, keep showing up. Right. I think that what we are trying to build is difficult, but it requires us that even when it doesn't seem like we're making any headway. Right. And I I tell people locally all the time, I don't care what your event is. If you invite me, I'm coming. It can be Pookie's fifth birthday party or a block (laughs) party or, you know, commencement at at a graduation. Right. If you invite me, I'm coming because. The more exposure we get to people, the more conversations we're having, the more we normalize politics, right? Like people say, Well, I don't, I'm not political. Well, yes, you are, right? Our very lives are political. And the reasons why we are not getting the things that we need is because we're not demanding them from the people we put in power. So, you know, we we just we have to keep, we gotta keep showing up. We have to leave the nonsense aside. Time out for the purity politics, meet people where they are, let folks evolve into their values and into the belief systems as they learn. um, And and really, like, let's begin to develop a deep, deep, deep solidarity among working class people, no matter what religion or skin color or how you identify, like, let's know that it is the, the us. (laughs) <laughs> right. Which, in the in the words of Uncle Bernie, it's the ninety nine. There's way more of us than there are of them. And we, we cannot continue to let them win.
1: Definitely. I would, I would be curious as we wind down the conversation, um, you know, they constantly want to set each other's throats red versus blue, conservative yeah. versus liberal. I'm willing to bet that running for mayor of Buffalo, you probably had very positive interaction with working class Trump supporters, comparative to, let's say, the people who live very comfortably out in, let's say, Orchard Park, that aren't liberal as they would claim to be. But this is a class war, as far as I'm concerned. And when issues like, you know, whether it's abortion, whether it's Trans rights, as far as I'm concerned, the wedge issues that get stuck in everybody's face when it's not health care, when it's not labor, when it's not the environment, when it's not criminal justice reform, and when it is not endless war, that is what divides people. But those major issues is what unites people.
2: I, I absolutely agree. And you would be very shocked at, I am shocked. Um, at some of the folks who who come up to me now and say that like they were supportive or people who say that they were not supportive, but now wish they had voted for me, right? Like we have a person who bragged the entire campaign about keeping property taxes low. And as soon as he was sworn in, we've now had two tax increases and another increase in user fees since he's been back in office, right? We have a common council that just... Gave the mayor and themselves these huge raises where now the common council person is making three and four times the average median income of a Buffalo resident um, is is just. <laughs> ridiculous, um, And it's, it's a real slap in the face, um, and the only thing that I can do is continue to raise awareness. Um, you know, offer myself up as a sacrifice (laughs) periodically and run myself or or encourage other people to do it. But ultimately folks have to get tired enough that they go out and they go to those polls and convincing numbers and reject um, what we've been given. And that's just more, more of the same. Uh, So, so is that like what, what organization, like what remind me
0: what you're, who you're with? Like, I know you were doing work with Working Families Party, but what was it stuff you were doing locally?
2: Yep. Yeah, so um, I, I resigned from Working Families Party because I was going to be a Working Families candidate again. Um, so I'm no longer with the party. I left there in December, last December, um, in preparation for running this year. So currently I'm doing some food sovereignty work. Um, I'm consulting with a local organization called Food for the Spirit. Um, we do know that the east side of Buffalo has a serious food insecurity issue. Um, when May 14th happened, we had to bus people across town um, to, to get groceries. So we're trying to, we're not trying to, we are planning to create a supply chain that circumvent major retailers and brings local produce produced by black and indigenous um, regional farmers directly into communities and um, to consumers. So um, that's work that I'm doing locally. And I'm also still um, on the team of Roots Action. Um, I began a program called Roots Action Civic Education. Um, so I register young people to vote. I go around and I speak at colleges and universities about the importance of civic engagement. Um, I do a lot of power mapping, um, teaching black clubs, you know, who in the local government does what, and when you have an issue, who you should talk to. Um, so keep them busy. That's awesome. So yeah. it's
0: civics. It's basically it's civics, which is what I mean, it's so important and it's not taught properly, and it's definitely not taught for kids to know how to get involved
2: locally, right. So for sure, that's what I do.
1: And dear, we cannot thank you enough for coming on this evening. Obviously, your work is, imperative for not just Buffalo, but for the state of New York and populist progressive politics nationwide, Um, we have to stick together. And I think what we find very often, especially in left populist circles, there are way too many chefs in the kitchen, way too many egos to go around. We really need to check them at the door and recognize that we need each other. Uh, Whatever the plans are that you have going forward, Please keep us informed and vice versa, and let's definitely do this again in the not too distant future.
2: All right, thanks so much. Thank you, India. Have a great night. Great to see bye. you. Bye
3: bye. Yes, she's understand?
0: lovely. You know, I think she's lovely. Um, yeah. It's you know, these are the kinds of these are ground warrior people. These are the people that are doing all the real work while people like the whoever I forget what is it,
2: Mayor Brown.
0: Yeah. Right. Mayor Brown, you know, those are those are the people that, you know, are sitting in a position and siphoning power and money for themselves while people like India are actually doing the work that a mayor and a municipal body should be doing.
1: I definitely agree. Uh, And that conversation was very thorough and very enlightening. I didn't even get around to talking about the dolphins and the bills. So clearly we were engaged enough where that didn't even come into focus. But. I think these conversations are very important. I think they're very important, not just because I think she's an exceptional political talent, even though you know, even saying the word political is kind of, you know, it turns a lot of people off, understandably so. But she has a she has a hell of a backbone. And you know, when you think about what the Democratic Party does to patronize millions of people. By saying that, you know, believe black women, listen to black women. I'm like, well, I can't think of a better black woman who ran for office and should have been in an incredible position of power only to watch the Democratic Party establishment in broad daylight rip the nomination out from under her and prove once again that it is not about what is in the best interest of the people, it is in what's in the best interest of the corporate power.
0: Well, you you left something very important out of that thing. Oh, yes, they're very supportive of Black women Democrats. However, as long as the word socialism has never been attached to said person, if the word socialism in any form has been attached to that person, then said person, whether or not they're Black, purple, male, female, whatever, it doesn't matter because now they're just a socialist. So that that whole identity politicking thing that they like so much goes out the window the minute that the word socialism comes out.
1: Well, I also think and this is also the whole point of the conversation that we were talking about regarding uh, the way that the Democratic establishment treated India. And what you have to remember now is they are going to continue to use those labels, socialist, green, radical. All of these things that they're going to continue to say, they're going to continue to espouse. And as a result of them continuing to do that, what I think is going to happen is that much like, well, you have to vote for Joe, otherwise we get Trump. I think the same thing is going to be true when they say, oh, they're a socialist. And, and they're going to be like, we don't have anything. So at some point, your scare tactics are just not going to work on us anymore. No. We're just going to look the other way. Yeah. Yeah.
0: We're over it at this point. I'm not falling for it at this point. But um, yeah, and I do think a big part of it is this labeling. The tribalism is the biggest divider, more than religion, more than race, more than socioeconomic. It's it's really insane how the partisan tribalism, it's like cultish at this point.
1: Well, we learned that for those of you who know that, you know, Jen and I do a lot of work on the ground here in South Florida and we were big supporters of Nick Sortle, who is now the mayor of the town that Jen and I both live in, Plantation, Florida. And what we learned, canvassing, is that you could be knocking on the most blue, no matter whose door, or the most pro red Trump door possible. And what we learned is that when you take away the party label, people will find common ground and they will vote for the same person. And that was our experience during that election. And there were times where people were asking, "Well, are they a Democrat or Republican?" And we would always say, "It's a nonpartisan race. Don't worry about it." And they would tell you that, "Okay, this sounds good to me." And so you 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 break through. You're breaking through, and that's why I think the appeal of Dr. West in this election is going to be a lot bigger than people think. Now, of course, he's going to need a financial infrastructure in order to be somewhat competitive, in hopes of obtaining a five percent. Uh, vote share in the general election, but if anybody's going to be able to do it right now, I would I would think that this is going to be the time where that is certainly possible, given the current environment.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, I feel somewhat hopeful. I was, like I said, I I lost it for Joe. Like he lost me with the railroad workers, really. Um, but definitely felt this sort of like ray of sunshine um, with Dr. West getting in and feeling like, OK, at least now there is a chance for the movement to keep moving through this election cycle, because that's really the biggest concern. It isn't so much whether or not he can win. And I, and I really stress that we talk about that all the time. That was so important in our campaign. The concept of the campaign is part of the movement. And that is something that, that is really critical. And if he didn't get in that race, we were not going to have that anywhere else.
1: That's true. And I do think that there is something to be said, as I said last time on, on our show on Monday, you know, if Bernie was the nominee in 2020, I'm not saying you would have beat Debbie, but you would have had a, there, there would have been a greater momentum of changes in the air and we really need to do something different. And I think that would have played a role in people's enthusiasm towards that generational change. And if you believe in our generational change, please go over to patreon.com forward slash generational change. For as little as $5 a month, you become a patron of our wonderful channel, small but mighty. You get the Lulu sticker as an intro gift. If you are so considerate as to give $10 a month, you get our last mansion parliamentarian bumper sticker.
0: I'm getting ready to retire that.
1: You're gonna have to come up with something different. But if you are a $25 a month contributor- I think
0: we should offer experiences and not things.
1: Fair enough, we can do that. Uh, Come up with some ideas, audience. Any ideas? Well, look,
0: I'd love to have uh, members meetings and all sorts of stuff, but every time I've initiated that, I get like very little uh, interest.
1: Well, we are very likely gonna be have a new producer on our show. And hopefully that is going to provide some assistance with growing our numbers and having more vested interest in doing things like perhaps a call in segment. Um,
0: Yeah, I would be happy to do that. And people have even asked me, can we call in? And it's like I have no problem with it other than technologically. I have no idea how that goes, which is why I'm like, no, but if you come on the live stream, you can comment and I'll, I'll respond to your comments.
1: Yes, and I think that, and listen, Taylor, you're right. People who get tired of the political system, and there is something to be said for a number of these channels that get a lot of, uh, you know, get a lot of leg, you know, there's a lot of legs uh, to their rhetoric by suggesting that voting altogether is a a non-starter. And my attitude is that is absolute BS. You should absolutely vote, but you should especially vote at the local level where the mm-hmm. greatest impact in your vote, you know, elections at the local level are decided sometimes by 10 votes, oh, 25 yeah. um, votes.
0: Excuse me, Uh, Sheila won her first congressional race by like six votes.
1: Yeah, I sat in the room where the Democratic establishment candidate was doing every which way to flip a handful of votes to become a congressional member. And Sheila Sherfalis McCormick is in Congress by six votes. So to suggest that it... De- uh, Jen, if you make a Cornell bumper sticker, that would probably do pretty well, I'm not going to lie. That okay. would probably do pretty well. So something to think about. Uh, there is no question, you don't like my music, that something is going to give, whether it is with the No Labels Party. The Libertarians are definitely going to field a candidate. Uh, Dave Smith has been floated as a potential candidate, uh, which I think is definitely possible. Uh, The more people that end up getting in the race, who knows what Andrew Yang's forward party has up their sleeve, if they've got anything going, of course, we still are holding out hope that Jesse Ventura is going to ultimately throw his hat in the ring. So we'll see what ends up happening there. We need more people in the race because as it has been displayed, as we are seeing right now, the Democratic Party has already made it clear that they are not going to be hosting any debates even though Joe Biden's approval rating is in the thirties.
0: Can I, can I say, even though I obviously am vehemently opposed to the suppression of the democratic process personally, for one, I don't want to watch their debates. And the reason I don't want to watch their debates is they stopped being actual debates so long ago that now all it really is, is theater and nonsense. And it's an echo chamber where people's opinions just get reaffirmed. They're not actual good debates. I'd love to see good debates. If they would give it back to the League of Women Voters, maybe. I don't know. But the way that they do debates, I don't care that they're not having debates because the debate, I don't even watch the debates. They're they're ridiculous.
1: Yeah, they are. And they're more of a spectacle than anything else. Also, if you guys... Do not want to put your info on the grid, please go over to Cash App, dollar sign, gen change. Any and all contributions will obviously make a difference. And we're certainly grateful for any that you would choose to make on our behalf. Now, here's a good example because, as has been discussed, Donald Trump is currently planning on skipping the first two debates. Man, I hate these channels with these stupid ads. But anyway, Donald Trump is not intending to participate in the first two debates. Well, what do you expect? They are overwhelmingly likely to be the nominees again, and yet they're clearly, whatever they're offering is not good enough. So this disconnect in our culture where we don't wanna have ideas you know, in the, in the public forum, which is really what debates are supposed to be. You
0: know what though, here's what I would suggest. And this is something that I remember thinking, I am all in favor of everybody hearing everybody's positions. I support publicly funded elections. I think every candidate who qualifies, and I don't know what the qualifications are. We could probably come up with something reasonable, but you know, all of those people get X amount of airtime. Um, and I think it's important for us to hear where people stand on issues. I do not think it's important for us to watch people just sit there and have gotcha questions and just a whole bunch of theatrical bullshit that's just designed to get ratings. So I like the idea of candidates having a certain amount of screen time that isn't a quote unquote debate where they can sit and talk about and even answer questions. I think each candidate should be able to act. I don't really see why it's necessary for them to debate each other anyway. I really don't see what, what what is that doing?
1: Well, I think people need to have fair coverage. I mean, RFK is a prime example of that because right now he is sitting on 20% of the vote and that's without getting any real coverage from corporate media. Uh, to just have his voice out there, and any co- coverage he does get is to basically paint him as a complete lunatic. And so, as a result, this is what's happening. And Holly is absolutely right. You know, if the League of Women Voters were still involved, we would have much more robust, fair debates. It didn't about-
0: get. It doesn't get the ratings, I guess, that they were gunning for. You know, I, I mean.
1: On Tuesday, senior advisor to the Trump campaign, Jason Miller, confirmed the long-simmering suspicion that Trump is unlikely to participate in at least the first two debates. It really wouldn't make much sense to go debate right now with a bunch of folks who are down at three, four, and five percent, adding that even Ron DeSantis is calling too far behind the president, former president, to justify engaging with the Florida governor on an even playing field. What, what does that say? I, so if if you are so far ahead, I would think that you are supposed to show why you're so far ahead. I mean No,
0: but as people that understand how this works, we understand that it's only for him. To, he only has something to lose by doing it. That's the point. He has no there is nothing for him to gain by doing that and only for him to lose. So from a strategy standpoint, I get it.
1: Perhaps, but that's also, it's also proving that the system is just completely and irrevocably broken. And what is gonna ultimately change it, I'm not sure. I I do think that there are people that are specifically running for president right now on the GOP side, most specifically Chris Christie, who is there to basically just take pot shots at Trump. He's being paid effectively to run for president even though he's not gonna do anything as a candidate, he's not gonna get any real votes, he's not gonna have any impact, but there are really powerful vested interests that do not want Trump to be president again, whether on the Republican or Democratic side to be, if we're being honest here, that just want Christie to be on a debate stage with Trump and just try to go after him with everything he's got. That's You say
0: that like this is a new strategy thing. I actually look at a chunk of the Democratic field from 20 were all there just to be able to coalesce behind, to just be able to coalesce against Bernie. So it's the same concept. What do you think half of those other people were doing in there?
1: I agree, and especially with Buttigieg. That was the whole point of him getting the boost that he got was to siphon as many votes away from Bernie as humanly possible. And then when it came time to coalesce, it was Buttigieg and Klobuchar and Beto that lined up behind Joe Everyone else of considerable relevance, if you want to call it that, ultimately did the same. And then, of course, you had Elizabeth Warren, who could have dropped out of the race and it would have really helped Bernie, but instead decided to stay in the race, even though she never finished higher than fourth in any of the first four states. So, yeah, it's right No, She
0: started out as as somewhat legitimate. Like, I'll give her that. I mean, I find it infuriating that Bernie had asked her to run in 16 against Hillary. She wouldn't dare do it. And then she actually accused him of saying that women can't run for president like that. To me, I'll never forget that about her. But I do think that she actually got in that race with the intention of being a candidate. Right. But I do think there were a bunch of people that they were there to be just sort of like, you know, decoys just bodies, if you will, so that they could coalesce their votes behind to get against Bernie.
1: Now, you know, I could never miss an opportunity to talk about a potential, uh, you know, sports quote, which is always good. When asked what Trump was afraid of, Miller insisted the 45th president was only being rational. I think in many ways it's similar to getting a bye in the first round of the NFL playoffs. When you have played an undefeated season, he continued, you aren't expected to risk it all against a wildcard team. Wow. Instead, Miller continued, it's really the rest of the GOP primary field that should commit to some soul searching here. Given their standing in the polls, the non-Trump candidates in the race should ask themselves if their campaigns are really just getting in the way of us beating Joe Biden next year. Well, to be fair, that is actually a good point. Uh, I do think that part of what is happening here is I do think that there are very, very, like I said, powerful forces within the GOP that want to basically pull a similar situation on Trump as they did to Bernie, which is- And maybe it'll
0: work. Maybe it'll work. But him going, him giving himself up as an opportunity as a debate is just an opportunity to make it work. He, I mean, like, I I get why he wouldn't want to debate.
1: I think you're right. Uh, but I also think that It's a lot his of the- to
0: lose- and, and as of now, he's teetering on some significant legal situation. So, you know, it, it's why, and he's still leading, regardless of all of that, the twice impeached former president who's been indicted, God knows how many times, more indictments coming from Georgia, and yet he's still leading in the polls. Why in the world would he ever want to debate them?
1: Well, let's well, let's transition to the Democratic side, because oh, no. I think that the story oh, is... Very important. Um, You know, if we're going to talk about RFK, who I do believe is a legitimate threat um, in the presidential uh, primary um, and potentially even in the general, depending on what he ends up doing, I think he's a real wild card in many ways. If you're going to talk about him, let's talk about something of substance. And I think this is of serious substance. RFK's campaign gear, not union or even U.S. made.
0: Yeah, that's a problem.
1: I think it's a huge problem.
0: It's a problem.
1: And if you're going to be standing out there in Los Angeles with the striking workers who are trying, the the writers who are trying to get a living wage, better health care options again, all of these things are very important. But being a poser is even worse because it's not, you know, your words are one thing, your actions are something entirely different. In this case, his actions are suggesting that he is not this pro-Labor Democrat that he's pretending to be.
0: Yeah, I think this is troubling just from the perspective of we know that it is absolutely feasible to get a union shop to do all your work. It's not like and and, and it's just a matter of somebody that has sort of this old Kennedy Democrat family name that sort of seems to be like this Americana thing. This is really like, to this is an unforced error.
1: RFK's team is bucking Democratic Party tradition by selling campaign merch not made in America or by union labor Axios has found. The move is out of step with Kennedy's statement, stated commitment to labor unions and along with his Anti-vax views could complicate his long shot primary challenge to President Biden. For generations, a rule for Democratic campaigns has been that as many materials as possible, shirts, stickers, placards, lawn signs and even campaign buses, be made by union shops in America as a sign of the party's commitment to labor unions and the working class. Now, look, we obviously can have a long, drawn out debate about what actual labor support is supposed to look like in the US. But every four years, for a good year plus, unions rely heavily on being able to generate a lot of business in the Democratic Party primary. And especially right now, when the only real challenge, with all due respect to the other person running in the primary, that RFK is the one real challenger to Joe Biden right now, And those unions that make campaign merch really need the business. Like they really need it. But
0: can I I point out the obvious, which I know is gonna sound, this is for anybody who really wants to know a cynics perspective on this, because this is how I see it kind of. It's like, as soon as those unions all came out early and endorsed Joe, before even any other thing happened, maybe RFK's team was like, you know what? Screw it. Let's just at least use our money most effectively. That's you know, my cynical perspective
1: on this. I, you know, Jen, that may be one of the best takes I've ever heard, and I'm not kissing your bum. I'm telling you, that's that's not even something that even crossed my mind, but that actually does make a lot of sense. what difference does it make? Well,
0: it doesn't. I mean, look, we think it matters from our personal opinion perspective, like that that's the right thing to do, but I wouldn't say that it's, A political, I wouldn't say it's a political faux pas, since he already isn't getting any of their endorsements. I just think it's a moral faux pas. That's
1: but this is is also like what India said before. Who's really suffering here? Is it the union leadership that's gonna suffer, or is it the union workers, the rank and file that (laughs) desperately need the work (laughs) that are now not gonna have it? Whether it is a case of it being spite on his part by saying, All right, you don't even want to have a real legitimate primary, then Forget it, I'm not giving you business. And he has millions upon millions of dollars behind him and he could make a tremendous impact. Kennedy 2024 t-shirts sold by Kennedy's campaign are assembled in Honduras, according to the tag on a shirt obtained by Axios. Now granted, Honduras is one of the poorest nations on earth and can certainly use the money, but I have a sinking feeling that they're not providing a living wage to those that are making the shirts in Honduras. So there's that conundrum that we're stuck with. The shirts come from Bella plus Canvas, a US-based clothing manufacturer that is not unionized. A campaign sticker sold by Kennedy's campaign also did not include a union label. Uh, Other materials on the campaign website do not include union labels. At least one Kennedy campaign item, the placards at his presidential announcement rally in April were union made, according to photos reviewed by Axios. Well, of course, they're gonna do that when they're on TV. They have to keep up appearances. You okay? (laughs) My water hit the back of my throat. throat, started choking. Oh, it, you could have died that time while I was just going on. <laughs> a- oh,
0: no, it was totally died. like just water, but like I couldn't catch. I, I was terrible. And now it looks like I was crying. I wasn't.
1: Are you sure? Are you crying? Yes, I am You're not crying. Uh,
0: I as, had a president, coughing fit.
2: I,
1: as president, I will protect American labor and American industry. RFK tweeted in May. Capitalism only functions equitably if workers have the collective bargaining power of unions so they can claim a fair share of the economic pot Actions speak louder than words. Democratic officials say having union-made merchandise is important to show support for labor and to ensure products are made in places with workplace protections. It's Politics 101, Ray Buckley, chair of the Democratic Party in New Hampshire, told Axios. I would love, I would hope that RFK would put human rights above his political aspirations. That's the nicest way to say it. Some union workers have drifted to the GOP in recent years, but Republican presidential candidates typically do not have their merchandise produced by union shops.
0: I wish Sable, I wish Sable, I can't, I'm in the Airbnb, sorry.
1: Still GOP candidates usually are careful to make sure their products are made in America. You know, for a, let's just say hypothetically speaking, there is a GOP candidate that isn't polling very well and is looking to make an impact and no one seems to be giving business to these labor unions that could desperately use it. Think about the impact that might make if they gave it to, let's say, a rank-and-file labor union that is making campaign merch. I bet you that would help them.
0: Well, look, I mean, all of it would help them. And and when I said that was my... Cynic's perspective, I meant it. I don't know that that's the thing. Like it just, I know how much I hate the fact how the union endorsement process works. I know how frustrating it is that they already endorsed Joe. So that's where my little cynical mind went. I don't really think that.
1: A little caveat from the final caveat from this article. Non-union campaign merchandise tripped up former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg's late entry into the 2020 Democratic presidential race. The campaign ordered T-shirts that were not union or U.S. made, according to two people familiar with the campaign. Well, guess what, ladies and gentlemen? There was nothing American about what Mayor Bloomberg was doing. He was simply in the race to kneecap Bernie Sanders. The entire intention of the Democratic Party primary in 2020 was to stop Bernie Sanders. Yeah. The sad truth is that the establishment really thinks that they won the 2020 presidential election, but all statistical data prior to COVID completely taking over our lives and our country showed that Donald Trump was an 80% favorite to win re-election when it became clear that Joe Biden was gonna be the nominee. So never forget that the intention of the Democratic Party is not to beat the Republicans first, it's to defeat progressives first. If they end up winning as a result, then that's just considered a bonus as far as they're concerned.
0: Right, well, I, I mean, and that's why the whole <clears throat> accusation of the spoiler thing doesn't work. It just doesn't work because you guys really are the same. So how can somebody be a spoil? Like, how could, let's say Cornell West getting in makes it so that Trump wins again. How, what is that spoiling? What, 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 it's spoiling us from having Joe who's doing the same thing, if not worse. Like who, what's, why is that a spoil?
1: No, you're right. And I think that that more than anything else really speaks to the issue here which is the working class continues to get the shaft and more and more people are starting to wake up to that reality. That's why the tragedy of COVID from an electoral standpoint was so bad. If Trump had won again, (laughs) the Democratic establishment would never have been able to explain away the method with which they did what they did to Bernie Sanders during the primary. Again, they would have, they would have not just had egg on their face. There would have been enough people coming around now saying, man, we really need to figure out another path. And that's why the appeal of RFK and of Dr. Cornell West is growing leaps and bounds by the day. That's why they don't want to have debates. No. Because they know that the candidates in question in both parties are just not that good.
0: Well, right. It only will serve to hurt them. It can only serve to hurt them. So as, as somebody thinking of it from a strategic point of view, on the one hand, I think it always makes somebody look weak if they're not willing to debate. On the other hand, I know that politically the optics are that chances are that by debating it will further hurt their image. So what's worse, hurting your image by, you know, either falling or being a buffoon or whatever it would be, or does it hurt your image more to just look like you can't debate? And that's sort of the the calculation that they're making.
1: I definitely agree. The last thing that I want to touch on before this night is over, for those of you who have been following, and again, make sure to smash that like button, subscribe. We've had pretty good viewership tonight, despite two (laughs) discs running at the same time. And despite the fact that uh, their special guests are uh, RBN, so the fact that they have double crossover on their channel tonight, and we've been close to 40 live viewers. Hey, listen, we got to brag where we can. I mean, it's not 400 or 1,000. Look, you
0: know what? We're, if we were If we were in small potatoes, we wouldn't find all of that. Like, we wouldn't be sitting there and being so excited about that.
1: Well, I think with the help of our new producer that's going to be joining us most likely as early as next week, there are hopefully some growth uh, potential changes that will occur for our channel. We're hoping yeah. hope against all hope. We are, can certainly learn a lot more. For those of you who have been paying attention, and last but not least, uh, before I bring on this, topic, <clears throat> next Monday we are going to have none other than Tom Hartman. I know not I'm everybody ready. Knows.
0: Finish yeah. the book today.
1: So that is always a wonderful conversation and will be plenty to talk about with Mr. Hartman as always. And then next Wednesday, we are scheduled to have Anna Escamani come on to talk about the <clears throat> reproductive rights ballot initiative here in Florida, hoping to, to maybe get a few more individuals that are representatives up in Tallahassee to do the same. So that will be an enlightening conversation as well. But we would be amiss to not conclude this show this evening without talking about the absolutely detrimental climate crisis that has been hitting us day in, day out, not just with the mudslides that have been going on up in Vermont, but for those of you who have been paying attention to the heat index down here in South Florida, it has been hitting triple digits almost every day, and it's killing people. I would think that once people start to die as a result of the heat wave, that that's a real problem that one is simply not gonna be able to ignore. Now the one member of MSNBC that I think is a fairly decent individual and tends to cover issues in as as honest of a perspective as he can, considering the network that he works for, but he's also not an American, hence why he supports universal (laughs) health (laughs) care. But Ali Velshi, who we are hoping to eventually get on our show, uh, put on a very, very powerful presentation, I believe, yesterday that we're going to play for you right now.
3: Depression. Decades of poor land management, land overuse, and drought contributed to the worst crop failures the nation had ever seen. And then windstorms began kicking up eroded soil, dirt and dust. The storms became more frequent. They became bigger, soon having an impact on whole swaths of the middle of the country. New Mexico, Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Colorado. The farmers were fleeing in droves, desperate to escape the dust. This was the Dust Bowl. The federal response was slow and lackluster. In 1933, Congress established the Soil Erosion Service to combat the erosion that was fueling these storms. But within just two years, as dust storms more than tripled, the money was running out. The head of the Soil Erosion Service, Hugh Bennett, was desperate for greater federal government intervention. So in March of 1935, Mr. Bennett went to Washington, D.C. to give testimony to Congress about the consequences of the Dust Bowl. According to multiple accounts, Mr. Bennett's speech was well-timed. Just as he wrapped up his remarks, a massive dust storm from the Midwest reached Washington, D.C. A biographer of Bennett named Wellington Brink wrote about that day in 1935, quote, out of one corner of his eye, he noted the polite stifling of a yawn. But Hugh Bennett continued deliberately. Presently, one of the senators remarked, quote, it is getting dark. Perhaps a rainstorm is brewing. Another ventured, maybe it's dust. I think you are correct, Bennett agreed, Senator it does look like dust. The group gathered at a window. The dust storm for which Hugh Bennett had been waiting rolled in like a vast steel town pall, thick and repulsive. The skies took on a copper color. The sun went into hiding. The air became heavy with grit, end quote. Shortly after the Dust Bowl came to Washington, Congress passed the Soil Conservation Act unanimously. The act also established the Soil Conservation Service, which eventually became the National Resources Conservation Service, permanently housed within the US Department of Agriculture. 90 years later, we're facing a different crisis. This summer, wildfire smoke has choked cities across the country week after week. Multiple heat waves are gripping massive swaths of the nation with no end in sight. In Texas, where the heat wave is entering its fifth week, emergency room visits for heat related illnesses are surging. People are dying from the heat. And it's not new. Last year, Texas saw nearly 300 heat-related deaths. That number is likely an undercount. Last month, the heat wave made Texas one of the hottest places on earth, rivaling the Sahara Desert. Energy demands in the state smashed records. Now, just two years ago, you'll remember, energy demands during a winter storm in Texas pushed the grid past its capacity. Blackouts during that storm led to nearly 250 deaths in freezing temperatures. So during this current heat wave, the key reason Texas was able to actually meet the demand, the increased demand, and avoid prolonged potentially deadly blackouts, green energy. Solar and wind power are credited with keeping Texans AC running as these temperatures have soared. And while Texas has invested heavily in what is proving to be life-saving renewable energy, Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott is fighting those initiatives. When promoting a proposed tax incentive program for energy production in Texas earlier this year, Governor Abbott's Abbott's big red line was that no renewable energy products be included because he wants to focus on dispatchable power, such as natural gas or coal. Right now, Most of the country is grappling with various heat waves. Models from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration estimate that 20 percent of Americans in the contiguous United States will experience dangerous temperatures this week. The worst of it will be in the southwest. Phoenix has already seen temperatures above 110 degrees for eight consecutive days. And weather models show that temperature surpassing 110 degrees every single day for the foreseeable future in Phoenix and other parts of the Southwest. If the forecast plays out as expected, this will be the worst and longest heat wave in America's history. We know that as a country and as a planet, we need to cut our emissions to try to limit the worst effects of climate change. But that's already happening. Last year, the Biden administration launched the first ever extreme heat response plan. It's a 10 point initiative to help the nation handle extreme heat waves. And as tens of millions of us will face this reality today and tomorrow and potentially all summer, we need the knowledge and the tools to protect ourselves and each other, because this is not an anomaly. This is our new normal.
1: The one issue with Ali's video is the biggest issue that the average person has when watching corporate media. He wants to absolve the Biden administration from their responsibility in accelerating the climate crisis. Yes, Governor Abbott Mm -hmm. in Texas is a complete and utter tyrant, and he sucks, and he's making it worse. But so is President Biden. And this, well, they outlined a 10-point plan. Who gives a damn? He approved the Willow Project. He approved the Mountain Valley Pipeline. He has approved drilling permits in two years, twice as many that Trump got through in four years. That's the problem with MSNBC, just as it's the problem with Fox News. They're all guilty of the same bullshit. All of it. Corporate special interests, which are funded predominantly by the fossil fuel industry, will tell you that a crisis is happening, but it's somebody else's fault. It's not our fault. We're doing everything we can to fix this problem. No, you're not. That's my take.
0: Okay, well, all I'm sitting here and thinking about is Reese because Reese is out there in uh, Scottsdale. So, um, yeah, I mean, they're not doing anything. They haven't done anything before. Why would we think they would do anything now? Oh, he has a plan. Biden has a plan. He has a 10 point plan.
3: Mm -hmm. I'll I'll
0: say that's probably about as effective as Bidenomics. And I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to hold my breath on his plan.
1: No, if you're going to really address what the issue is here and why, once again, if Bernie was president, this would be much more of a seriously attended to crisis, which it is because it is a crisis, you can declare a national emergency, enact the uh, Defense Production Act and build out a clean energy grid, the likes of which have never been seen before. And that will include nuclear energy. But when it's wind, when it's solar, when it's geothermal, there are so many things that could be done to get us off of coal and natural gas, which is accelerating Mm. the climate crisis. And the reality is, and this is the sad truth about what we ultimately do as Americans, we are not in the business of preventing problems. We're in the business of fixing problems until the climate crisis is literally at our doorstep where people everyday people, and especially people with ways and means, are suffering as a result of this catastrophic heat, that's when eventually enough people are going to say, yeah, we got to do something about this. I actually
0: like where you don't like my music is going, because that's kind of what I was going to say. The reality is, is that prevention is not as profitable as remediation. And that's because once something horrible has happened, and again, here's my, I'm being very cynical, but once something horrible has happened and you can gouge people and raise prices and do things that are so much more, I don't know, profitable, it's a lot easier to fleece the system than preparing things ahead of time. So they're always, just like it. healthcare is not profitable. They'd rather just do disease care. Right? Like we don't want to keep people healthy. We want to just maybe cure their diseases so that we could profit off of it. It's the same thing.
1: It's true. And yes, here's what I would say off the rails. Dry heat definitely makes a difference.
0: No, not at that temperature. It doesn't. Sorry, say once you're over a hundred, I don't care.
1: No, I've been to the I've been to I've been to Arizona and Nevada and I've been in that type of heat. Yes, it is very hot, but (laughs) I will make 110 degrees of dry heat over 95 degrees of humidity heat like you have here in South Florida. When it is 95 degrees and humid in South Florida, you know what the difference is? That humidity dehydrates you. It makes you literally physically sick. If you are out there for too long, that's how people end up getting heat stroke and ultimately people die. So this is much more of a problem on the east part of the United States than on the west. That is a difference. Now, granted, 110 degrees is still 110 degrees. But if you're not standing directly in the sun, you will be okay. You don't have to stand directly in the sun here in South Florida to not feel the effects of how bad it is to be out in the heat. Why do you think it's so hard to change the electorate, or, or excuse me, change the elected officials in South Florida because elections, especially primary elections, take place in August. They make it so that it is unbearable for most it's people
0: excruciating.
1: to want to be out there to make that difference. But as we said, this is a raging problem that is only going to get worse.
0: But I would like to plug tomorrow night Gen Z report. They're going to be talking about the environment. So that is the topic for tomorrow night.
1: Yes, it's a conversation that should be continued because this is a real problem. I hope that the kids will be talking about nuclear energy and the importance of recognizing that we need transitional energy that can withstand the type of grid that the American people want. Because let's be honest, most people don't want to live without power and they don't want to experience what that's like to, to take, let's just say, several hours a day where they're off the grid much less not have any of it at all. So there's a lot of interesting circumstances that will be popping up as we go forward. But this is very serious. Uh, credit Ollie Velshi for addressing a lot of those important points. Granted, he had to do it through the lens of protecting Biden and the Democratic establishment. But still, honest point. You know, I don't remember who said it the other day. I think it may have been on Patrick. Yeah. <clears throat> But they mentioned the point that the biggest problem with corporate media is that they will address key issues, but they'll always leave parts out that really get to the heart of what the real what the real problem is. And I think that was a prime example right there. Trying to try to frame it in from the perspective of but the Biden administration is really trying to help. No, they're not.
0: No. Well, that's the same as that was the same as AOC's endorsement. They are all closing ranks. They obviously feel very threatened. They are, know that they're desperate. And we're just gonna continue to see more and more of these little like protections, little ploys, little things that will just keep all the spotlight off of them.
1: And that more than anything else, and yes, it is lying by omission, is what will be their undoing next November when the GOP almost assuredly takes over this country again. So we must keep perspective, build from the ground up, Have these conversations like we did with India tonight and have conversations that we will have with the likes of Tom Hartman next week. Smash that like button, subscribe, potentially become a patron, maybe contribute uh, through our cash app. Any and all help makes a huge difference. Great audience tonight. Great conversation. Appreciate you all. We'll see you Monday.